Good morning. Good morning. It is a great morning. Kind of feels like a holiday weekend, right? It's not the holiday. Uh, Tuesday, we celebrate the 4th of July, and this is my uh, not-in-the-notes, just bonus thing. Um, as a pastor here, as a pastor for 32 years somewhere, um, I've had the opportunity to go places in the world on missions trips and take teams from the church that I served. What I want to let you know, no matter what you hear on the news, no matter what you read on the paper, there isn't anyone I have ever met in the places I've visited who wouldn't want to be sitting in the seats that you're sitting in right now. The 4th of July, we celebrate our independence, our freedom, our freedom to worship as we want to express. And I would want to tell you that there, that's, that means it's true for everybody, right? Not just us. But it is a great opportunity to gather. And are you pleased? Are you encouraged to be able to worship together? Yeah. So you can fly those flags when you do. Think about how it impacts your worship on Tuesday. Um, we will be trying to find a place to view the fireworks where we don't have to pay for it. So, <laughs> so there's that. At Redeemers, we are all about helping people fearlessly follow Jesus. In one brief sentence, actually, it's not a sentence, grammarians, I know that, but in one brief series of words, we declare who we are and what we do. We have values at this church that are driven by that. We believe, are people who believe in Christ. We believe it's important to be part of Christ's family, to actually be engaged with each other's lives. We believe it's important to grow in our faith. And it's important for us to reach others for Jesus. I would tell you that those are values that this church is just this church holds, but pretty much any church of pick your denomination is going to hold to these sorts of values. And you know where they come from? They come from the passage we're going to look at today. Open up your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 42 through 47. I want to thank Pastor Billy Reader for giving me this passage because I think it is the most studied passage that talks about how a church practices of any in the Scriptures. We learned in the last few weeks that the people had gathered in Jerusalem from all kinds of different places to celebrate what they called the Feast of Weeks. We refer it to now as Pentecost. God moves amongst, amongst his followers. Peter preaches a sermon and thousands of people's lives are different. And the church is born. Let's read about it, beginning in verse 42. What was born? It's beginning here. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done up through the, the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. 
As we prepare to break this down, will you pray with me? Father in heaven, we got a room full of folk in this service, and we have folks watching online, and yet all of us have things in our lives that could hinder our ears and our heart for the message that you would have for us today. I pray that you would move in a way, your spirit would move in the way of the hearts of everyone here, not because of words that are framed by me, but because of truth that is yours. Shape us, mold us to be the people you want us to be, for we pray in your name. Amen. The church in Acts is presented as the model church. But this doesn't mean it was perfect. As we will continue our study regarding the birth of the church over the weeks and months ahead, we will find out that this fearless bunch of Christ followers had hypocrites in it. It had to deal with doctrinal errors. It was filled with flawed people of all types, just as any church does today. And just so we can understand what was going on in this first gathering known as the church, I would tell you and remind you, it was a community church. It was gathered for a time in one area. The people who made up, those who responded, most of them didn't live there. But they had come for that celebration that we mentioned a moment ago. It was a large church. I don't write it, I just read it. It says at least 3,000 people started a, a large church plant right there. It had multiple staff to lead it. There's the 11 disciples, referred to them as the apostles. More leadership was added, added to manage the needs of this, this mass of people. Scriptures refer to them as deacons from the word diakonos, which actually literally means table waiter. They were there to serve the needs of the people. It was a joyful church. It was a vibrant church. It was a growing church. And some of its best members were sent out from among them to bring the truth of Jesus Christ to other parts of the world. The success of this church was based on the fact that all the believers were doing the work of the ministry. God was building up the body. Does any of that sound familiar to you? The values of this gathering, the one that you are sitting in this room or watching right now, are, are built upon these values that start in Acts chapter 2. It was true of them. It's true of us. So today we're going to be talking about the characteristics of what makes up the church. More specifically, the fundamental principles that shape our convictions. While the earliest church uh, did begin to form ways to grow and serve one another. Uh, they didn't have great programs. Their programs did not form their convictions. Their priorities formed the bedrock of their actions. And what, whenever and wherever the world uh, gatherings of fearless followers of Jesus gather, wherever that happens, the church that employs these principles has a powerful effect on the community and that church will flourish. So what are these priorities? In the very first verse, we see verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. 
Here's the overview. The new church was focused on truth. Of all the things that Luke could tell us about this church, the very first thing he mentions is the teaching. In spite of having just experienced something incredible on that day that we studied last week, when Peter spoke, the Spirit moved and the people responded, they're not trying to just repeat that past experience. They're not trying to do the same concert over again. Instead, they, they focus on the truth of Scripture. The church at Acts was focused on learning and applying the apostles' teaching, the text says. And the disciples devoted themselves to it. It was important. What does that mean? Well, the apostles' teaching is referring to the apostles, the disciples, were those specifically chosen by Jesus to remember, to teach, and to record the words with the power of the Holy Spirit moving them. The truth about Jesus coming, how he was the Messiah, that the Old Testament was fulfilled in this one we have just known as Jesus. And today we have the product of their investment. Some of you are looking at it right now. The scriptures, including the New Testament, is a fulfillment of what Jesus said he would do through the disciples when he sent them into the world to teach the gospel and to make disciples. A healthy church is one that is always a Bible-studying church. A healthy church is a learning, growing church. And at Redeemers, it can be seen as our priority. Lord, I would tell you that long before I was a pastor at this church, this church was known for a strong teaching pulpit. Even when I was a, a pastor of another church in this community, if I had a free day on a Sunday, you know where I was? I was here. I was getting paid by someone else, but I was here. Scriptures from this podium week, week in and week out, and the Bible studies, the community groups that you have formed together, discipleship ministries where people pour what God has done in their lives into the lives of someone they love and mentor, all those reflect a commitment on the part of this fellowship to be a learning and growing church. We also see that they devoted themselves to the fellowship. Your second fill-in-the-blank, a lot of fill-in-the-blanks today. Billy's on vacation, so I had more. The new church was marked by oneness. John Stott once said, he was a, a pastor and a, a great theologian and writer, said the word fellowship here was born on the day of Pentecost. It's the Greek word koinonia, which literally means to have something in common, to hold something in common. How many of you are Ducks fans? Okay, all right. Let's hear it. All right, that's pretty weak. How many of you Beavers fans? Well, I don't know. I don't have many orange shirts, but... You responded just now because there's something you identified, especially the Beavers fans, as something that you have in common. Now, Ducks fans, I'm the one wearing green, so I'm with you on that one, all right? 
Now, Christian fellowship literally means there's a common participation in God. It is the powerful combination of the vertical relationship that we have with him and the horizontal relationship that we experience as we experience life together. And it's what pulled these first Christians together, that faith, as it was expressed together in that environment. And verse 42 mentions two things that they did. It speaks of the breaking of bread and the prayers. The breaking of bread referring to what we would practice as the Lord's table. And the prayers in ways that I would say were both formal, you could say informal, or personal. The church in Acts was focused on the breaking of bread. The breaking of bread, speaking once again of the Lord's table, remembering Christ's death and celebration and his resurrection. It was usually always expressed as part of some bigger meal. But as a part of that meal, there would be, they call it the love feast at some point, part of that time would be spent focusing on what Jesus had done for them. The church in Acts was focused on the prayers. It was something probably that they would have been very familiar with as they gathered together in mass. It would be a a formal liturgy, if you want to use that word, if you even know what that word means, but it's the, the order of service that you're accustomed to. But when they gathered in their homes, or little church, my words, it was much more personal. That's the short story. So let's make four observations about what these things mean in these next five verses. And we continue with verse 43. What happened? And awe came upon every soul, and many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. Verse 43 says that they witnessed miracles, wonders or miracles that evoked awe. It says that they had miraculous signs. The word here is semea. There were miracles that were specifically pointing to a divine truth. So what kind of miracles were they? We would have to continue reading the book of Acts, and we're not going to take a lot of time, but let me just walk through them for a moment. In Acts chapter 4, verse 30, the apostles were involved in more healing. They spoke with boldness and truth. Don't turn there, because by the time you turn there, I'm going to move on. (laughs) Acts 5.12. Many signs and wonders are experienced as they people were continued to grow and they followed Christ. In Acts 6.8, we see a guy named Stephen introduced to him, who amazed the Jewish leaders with his wisdom something that brought them such awe that they got so intimidated by his wisdom that they gathered a bunch of people together, rose up in insurrection, took rocks, and they killed him. By the way, someone named Saul, or later Paul, was watching. We see in Acts 8, Philip, he cast out unclean spirits from a man, and he healed a paralyzed individual. And when a false teacher named Simon, a magician, made the whole people believe that it was tricks, when he saw Philip, 
He believed. Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas are in Iconium, more signs and wonders, and it strengthened the believers who were there, intimidated by the Gentile populations who didn't want to hear their truth. In Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas continued before the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem council. Think of it as going to court, defending their ministry of the gospel to the Gentiles by sharing all the signs and wonders that they experienced together. We're not sure if there were others who had the same power, but the text clearly, clearly tells us that the disciples did, and the purpose was to authenticate them as Jesus' messengers. But it's clear that the church witnessed miracles. We're in awe. You go to the Grand Canyon, there's like no words for it, right? You just stand there, and it's like, I can imagine it's cloudy and rainy, and you wouldn't have that experience. But on the, the days that the photos are made, it's, it's an awe experience. That was the, that's a small, small bit of what they were experiencing in this, this time together. And then what happened? Well, I'd tell you, it made a difference because they began to live differently. They were selfless. They were generous. Verse 44 and 45, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing to the, the proceeds to all as any had in need. We see here that the church was selfless and had all things in common. I would tell you, some people read that, some people in the church, and they get a little nervous. The fact that they were selling their possessions and sharing the proceeds has often been misunderstood as some sort of biblical endorsement for either communism or socialism. But I would want to tell you that the truth is that what we see the text, what the text is saying here is just the opposite. Well, how, how so? Well, communism is compulsory. It is the enforced sharing. It is a system based on the premise that no one, no one, has a right to own anything. It's always interesting to me that in those systems of government, they are led by people who seem to own a lot. You see, communism is compulsory. Socialism is slightly different in that while it does not den deny the individual the right to own anything, it does compel each individual to give a percentage of what they own to others. Socialism however, is not generosity because it replaces generosity with obligation, resulting in giving out of guilt and bitterness rather than love and joy. We know that's not what they were expressing here because of love and joy. Where these two systems break down is that they fail to acknowledge the motivation. Why are the people to share? Why would they want to? And here in Acts 2, it's very clear that it comes from an internal commitment that these people have made to God and to each other. They've changed. They're not the same. It's not about them anymore. That's not 
That's not the values of these people anymore. And they shared their goods with one another because they were generous. I would tell you that they were generous because they were experiencing, and in the moment experiencing, a generosity from God that many of us too have experienced, perhaps in a less dramatic way. It's called grace. Grace is God giving us what we do not deserve. Don't ask God to give you what you do deserve. That's a bad, that's a bad thing. In his gospel, Luke tells us that we understand a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Luke 12, 15. Later in the book of Acts, Luke writes, under the inspiration of the Spirit, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, they were a loving, giving church, selfless and generous. And verse 46 explains that this happened in two different formats. And day by day, verse 46, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, two different things. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. Verse 46, we see that they were marked by joyful worship. Joyful worship expressed when they gathered together in what, again, I refer to as big church. They would have sung familiar songs, psalms, because that's all they would know. There was no Caleb back then. No Caleb's summer tour to create new worship songs that the church could apply. No, this was all new. So what they knew was the Old Testament and the psalms that are written there. In the little church, there it would have been much different than the thousands gathered together, just as your small group is different than the gathering in this room today. And just like the prayers, it was both formal and personal. And when they gathered and attended in that temple arena, it didn't mean that they were practicing sacrificial worship as they did in the Old Testament. What it did mean was they were meeting in the only place big enough in Jerusalem for that many people to gather. The temple courts are referring, we believe, to the courtyard of the Gentiles, which is a very large place. It could accommodate, well, just imagine for a moment, a space that is three to five city blocks large. It was the only place in Jerusalem where that kind of crowd could gather. And what was it that they did when they did gather there? They would have sung psalms. They'd have been what they knew. At this point, their order of worship, some would call it their liturgy, probably reflected the order of worship that they knew when they gathered in their synagogues, only on a grander scale, because it's what they knew. When they gathered more intimately in little church, verse 46 says that they broke bread in their homes. The very fact that breaking their bread is, seems to be applied into both arenas seems to reflect that they did this in both arenas. And as for the little church, this communion service in the home would have been much more personal and joyful. I remember uh, COVID, remember that fun uh, little period of our lives? 
Right at the beginning of it, it was right before Easter, if you recall, um, I had the Good Friday service. And we were all watching on TV, except those of us filming it. We asked people to, to go get their own elements, their bread, their juice, or their wine. And we practiced the Lord's table in a very personal, different way than we do when we're gathered together as a group. Well, they did that too. One last thing that I don't want to miss is that this joyful public and private worship was marked by something. It was marked by joy. It marked by that expression of what God had done inside them, and you couldn't contain it. I remember when I first trusted Christ as my Savior. Some of you remember newfound faith, especially if you found your faith as an adult or a later adolescent. Man, everything changed. I can remember when I finally had access to the car, driving to this church near where I lived, and I would get there early. And I'd be there when that deacon who was assigned to lock it up would be there to lock the building. They were kicking me out. I couldn't get enough of it because I wanted to be around these people whose lives were so different because guess what? Mine was different. My parents didn't even understand. And I had come to the knowledge of the fact that apart from Jesus, I was lost. But because of Jesus, I was found. And because he died on the cross for my sins, I could be forgiven. And when I appropriated that truth to my life, everything changed. They were a church that expressed their worship in large gatherings and small with joy. And I tell you, that combination of joy and generosity that they had is what the people in Jerusalem would have seen. And we see it in the fourth and final characteristic in this text, verse 47. They were praising God and having favor with all the people. And their Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Note it didn't say they were added to their number on Sundays. They added to their number day by day. The church grew because the people changed. And when they changed, they welcomed others to be part of what was going on in their life. They didn't sign up for an evangelism program that met on Sunday afternoons, talked to everyone in town. Well, this is speaking about what happens when people's lives are changed. When people's lives are changed, they express hope of a new belief. And as the people here responded to the Holy Spirit and their lives changed, they began talking about Jesus and what he did for them. It was all they could talk about. How could they do anything else? They had experienced something wonderful. They had experienced the work of God in their life. These people would have seen Jesus celebrated. These people would have seen Jesus arrested, some of them, tried and killed. Some might have been there at the cross. 
Many of them who were there saw the resurrected Jesus. They saw him walking around. And by doing so, they witnessed God's grace in a very real, very real way that became a a very personal part of their life. Though the coming of the Spirit happened when Peter gave his Spirit-filled message that we looked at over the last couple weeks, they now become part of the story. Why can I say that? Because it's on your lap right now. We're reading it. They were firsthand witnesses. They were changed. And they didn't keep it just to themselves. They welcomed others. They wanted others to be part of this explosion of joy that they were experiencing themselves. Not only was God using them to share what happened to them, but he would, they would encourage them to join them in this growing movement became what the church is. It would be easy for them to say, you know, I've got my 120 people. We're good. Good. I don't like large churches. Yeah, that's, you know, some of you feel that way, and I respect you. But guess what? That did not limit them there. They didn't say, we don't have room for the other 3,000 of you. They embraced them. They welcomed them. Eventually, the assumption is that they scattered and went back to their home towns and continued to do the same. But Jesus grew his church, and he did it every day. Man, if there's something else to write in your notes, write that down. Jesus grew his church every day. Here's the bottom line. The priorities of the first church that help establish our priorities in this church include the idea that they love the teaching of God's word. They were people who freely and generously gave to others. You know, one of the things that I want you to know if you're new to Redeemers is this church is a generous church. Again, during that blasphemous time called COVID, there was also a fire up in the mountains called the Archie Creek Fire. And trying to help the needs of displaced community members, on one Sunday, this church said, can we help? People threw stuff in a bucket. And $40,000 was available to local distribution, and it did not impact the, the regular church budget one penny. This church you're sitting in is a generous church. And if you haven't appropriated that value to your life, I want to encourage you to do so, because as we do that, we can continue to have an impact on the community that God has given us. They love to worship with joy. Just a few moments, the worship team will come back here. And I expect this room to feel different than it does right now. And that that worship will be an expression of the transformed life that we have. And they grew in number. There was there'll be more there was more of them the next day than there was the first the previous day. 
Some years ago, when I was on staff here, we surveyed the people of this church. I hated surveys, I'll tell you that personally, but we did. 75% of the people that responded to that survey said that they had been invited to this fellowship by a family member or a friend. They didn't just walk in. One individual said that a nurse in a doctor's office where she had an appointment and invited her. If you're a fearless follower of Jesus this morning and you are living a life that is full, it has purpose, that you are seeking to have relationships that are built on mutual trust, a common hope and generosity, I will tell you, you will have an impact on the people around you. You can't even help it because it's a part of who you are. They probably don't even know it, but there are people that you work with. People down the street, maybe. Maybe extended family members, maybe family members in your home. Very quietly longing for what you possess because you possess the hope that this church in Acts possessed. Talk to them. Share with them the share with them your story, not your theology. They don't even know what that is. They don't care. They want to know how Jesus transformed your life. Theology will come. They won't tell you, but they're curious and they want to hear. Bring them to an event, bring them to your group, have them over for dinner. Go to in and out wherever. But let's invite the people around us to share in the hope that we have. Let's pray. Father God, today we've been reminded of the importance to live our lives with the principles modeled by that very first church in Acts 2. As a part of your church today, may our love for your truth and our love for those around us be evident as we live our lives. Father, may we reflect the same joy and generosity as that group in Acts chapter 2 when we worship you. As we serve others, and as we give you all the glory, always and forever. Amen. Amen.